Archimedes podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archive Diseases of Childhood, where we take real cases that have intrigued someone to go away and look at the evidence behind a clinical question that's arrived. If you ever want to look back at what we've done before, you can take a look at the podcast archive or go on the website and have a look back. We've also got quite a large blog section where we do a lot of talking about the bits of how to do evidence-based medicine, the practicalities of critical appraisal, and some of the issues that arise from that. There you'll learn all about PICO, which is the way of structuring questions, searches, critical appraisal, when evidence isn't that good, how to apply it in practice, things about asking questions with patients to get the best answers. But this time, what we're asking in our evidence-based query sort of thing is all about personalised medicine. And for those that hold to the personalised medicine future of therapeutics, the case that they usually make is the one about identifying those people who will gain from a medicine against those who do not. It separates the signal from the background noise. For instance, if we did a large randomised control trial of antibiotics for fever, we stand a fair chance of showing that antibiotics aren't really any good for fever. The benefit of antibiotics in bacterial infections being swamped by the viruses, the dodgy thermometers and the other things that make up the noise of supposed fever. And with that in mind, that's the sort of reasoning behind searching within a potentially heterogeneous mixed group of patients to identify those patients who will gain benefit from an intervention. And even if you take the entire population, there doesn't seem to be much gain extracting the information from it. Now, this does pose a problem. And the problem is of data dredging of taking the trial, the evidence that you have that shows that a thing isn't really very effective and going back through it again and again and again and cutting it in so many different ways. This is p-value fitting. It's over-prediction that we've talked about in the field of decision rules. The same issues apply. If you hunt and hunt and hunt for, say, a gene signature that predicts response, you may well end up with a red herring. Roughly speaking, you need about 16 times the sample size to look for interactions than you do for the original sample itself. Now, post hoc analyses, this idea of looking back at the data, can be very good at generating an idea about what might be the cause. But that's all it is. You need to remember that it's full of maybes and howevers and possiblies, and that good statistical common sense has to be read into these ideas. When you take those ideas and you test them again and again and again, fairly often you find that the first, even if it looks significant in a p-value sense, the first theoretically reasonable p-value significant plan doesn't actually predict in the end. Bear in mind that what we want is precision medicine, but if we get it wrong and we believe the stats too much, we may end up with herring-directed medicine. Now, on to the first question being asked this time. This is a combination of authors from Australia. Dr Wilkins, Steer, Cranswick and Amanda Gui, who's written a number of these. And really, if you want to write an Archimedes, you should get in touch with her and find out how she does it. The scenario is working in a remote clinic in northern Australia and you see an 18-month-old girl who's only 10 kilos presenting with a pruritic rash on her extremities. 
She's got a history of persistent scabies, and that's despite multiple treatments with a topical permethrin. You diagnose her with scabies again, and although you are aware that oral ivermectin is used for scabies, it tends to be for older children over the age of five years, and a fair bit heavier, 15 kilos or more, and you're concerned that it might not be safe to use it in a child of this age, and this weight. And so they asked the structured question in a child of five years of age and less than 15 kilos, is oral ivermectin, the intervention, a safe treatment option? They broadly defined safety there. They went away and looked at Ovid to get at Medline and Embase. They used a range of search uh, search terms to come back with 610 potential articles, of which 30 of which seemed to be reasonable. One of them was good enough as it stood, and the other 29 didn't really have enough information in them, so they went to the original authors. 13 people got back to them, and from that, 9 studies in total were included in this review. That's really impressive, and a step beyond what we say most Archimedes would have. To go out and go beyond the well, there was only one article I had the information in, to actually get that extra information is hugely useful when you put it in the context of a rare condition. The summary of the information shows that these studies tend to be single-centre, single-arm studies rather than big-quality RCTs. There is an RCT in there, but it's not very large. Now, that isn't this surprising, but when we're looking at safety rather than efficacy against something else... Single-arm studies are perfectly acceptable because what we're looking for is a spike in badness, really, rather than comparing it necessarily to something else. The authors found that when they put together all of these studies and looking at small children and young children, they found that it was generally very safe. Only four out of the 60 children where safety data was reported had any sort of adverse event, although... To be fair, some of those studies did not use a standardised questionnaire to look for those side effects. The side effects were ones that were already known generally, that is, uh, skin reactions to them. Um, One very unusual, where the child experienced a sort of nervousness and irritability, thinking that it was CNS-related. They didn't show any drug in the CSF that they took, and the child actually had a a, a concern for meningoencephalitis in the first place. So whether there was some maybe instability of the blood-brain barrier or whether it was to do with the underlying condition was unclear, and the child was fine after two years of follow-up. In terms of indications, the majority of children that were given ivermectin had whatever the problem was that they started out with resolved by that treatment with 80% cure rates. And this was in keeping with what people would expect for the scabies sort of population. Clearly, it's limited in the sense that it's not a lot of children that are small and light to be looking at. And the dose range that can be used was really quite wide, between 150 and 200 mics per kilo. And the formulations varied between crushed tablet tablet preparations um, and with liquid preparations. But on the whole, it appeared to be as well tolerated and as effective in this younger, lighter population than it was in the larger and older ones in whom it is more commonly used. I think this Archimedes is a really impressive 
pull together of the evidence to answer a very specific and some may say very obscure question, but using a very systematic, very scholarly technique to get to the truly the best evidence that we have in order to answer that for the benefit of patients. The next question comes from the University of Cambridge in the UK, where one of the medical students, Alicia Berman, uh, reports on the use of Montelukast for viral-induced wheeze in preschool children. Having seen a three-year-old in the emergency department with wheeze and tachypnea, virally induced with the onset of snot and scrotiness in the last few days, she was treated with beta-2 agonists and oral corticosteroids. Given that steroids may potentially have endocrine side effects, including short growth and weak bones and all the rest of it, there was a wondering if you could use a, a leukotriene receptor antagonist like Montelukast in this situation. Works in asthma, does it work in viral-induced wheeze? And so the author went away and looked at PubMed and the entire NHS evidence database looking for answers about Montelukast and leukotriene antagonists in the preschool era. There were 69 potential hits which broke open one Cochrane review and a further RCT on top of that. Now the review consisted of about 3,700 children aged between 1 and 6 years old with an episodic viral induced wheeze and the RCT added a further 70 participants but specifically in that younger age range, 36 months or so upwards to just the start of school with wheeze that was very much assigned to viruses and not in an asthma setting. The review pulled out a lot of these trials that compared a variety of things with Montelukast and found it was no better than placebo in stopping the need for further treatment in other episodes, attending the emergency department or being admitted to hospital. Although looking deep into this study they found that it might be that in one of the studies a particular gene gene promoter phenotype was found that Montelukast responded to that 5-5-A-L-O-X patients. A very small numbers, lots of fishing, would be very wary. The add-on RCT found the same thing really, comparing Montelukast to fluticasone to no additional treatment at all didn't change the number of hospitalizations didn't change the number of episodes of wheeze so why do people still use it why do people even think that it's beneficial well it might be that it's a straightforward placebo effect that giving something makes people feel better compared to giving nothing it might be that the AL05 gene thing is real and that clinicians have an unerring sense for who has that gene, even without any testing. It might just be luck. It might be that by chance, the ones you see are the ones that seem to have any benefit for it. It's recommended for the under fives with children who have asthma when it's not controlled by low-dose inhaled corticosteroids. But it's difficult to determine beyond the split between asthma and episodic viral wheeze, which is going to be which. If you've got someone who really looks like they've got just wheeze with the viruses and they're absolutely fine in between, given the Montelukast does not seem to have benefit either as a maintenance therapy or as an intermittent therapy alongside their viruses. And the bottom line from this is just don't do it. It has no great benefit. So, 
two Archimedeses with quite different flavours. You too can throw your hat in this ring. Was there a clinical question that you had that you weren't sure of the evidence for? Is there something that you want to spend a little bit of time learning more about, say the use of ivermectin in children under five years old and less than 10 kilos in weight in the Northern Territories of Australia? Crack on. Get on the website, look up the instructions to authors, drop us an email, and you might be part of the growing panoply of stars that have helped their colleagues by developing evidence-based medicine for paediatricians in the Archimedes section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Until next time, thank you for listening.